Hello, I'm Katie Bosler, host and producer of Active Voice, 49 Writers podcast with writers and artists on crafting and telling stories in these challenging times. My guest for this episode is a college student raised in Gustavus, Alaska. By her high school graduation, she'd published her first novel. I'm Linnea Lentfer. I'm the author of Hold the Tide, and it's a place-based novel featuring a 12-year-old girl who's grown up in the southeast Alaskan wilderness in a pretty isolated setting. And it's her process of survival and coping with loss and trying to figure out what the outside world is beyond her island. This relates to where you grew up. In what way? Yes, Eve's story is really based in being rooted in place, which has a lot of resonance with my childhood. And when I started writing the book, I was about the age that Eve is in the story. So it had some autobiographical elements in there in terms of my relationship to place. Eve is a little bit more immersed than I was able to be, but there's roots and it's really closely related to an island I spent a lot of time on as a kid. How did this story come to you? I mean, not all 12 year olds, you know, just have a novel in them. There's not one moment where I remember it beginning. I do remember telling my dad, Hank, that I have an idea for a book and I don't, it had been brewing for a while. The original plot was fairly different than what ended up being in the final draft. It went through a lot of iterations and shifts, but I don't remember the specific moment. It had kind of been, pieces of it had kind of been brewing for a while and then. How do you mean brewing? I had an idea and then started talking about it and would get another piece and then wrote some scenes, I think starting when I was 10 or 11. And then it really started kind of formulating. I was homeschooled my sixth grade year. Um, and my parents let me kind of follow this wild idea and have starting this novel be my English portion of homeschool. And I spent some time writing scenes and kind of thinking more about the plot. So it was your assignment. <laughs> yeah. So to speak. Yeah. I imagine your dad being a writer had something to do with it as far as your influence. Definitely. I think he was both my parents were really good at kind of letting me follow whatever this crazy idea was and it was really helpful to have Hank especially later on there was a period where we were both writing every morning and he was working on Raven's Witness um, and I was working on Hold the Tide and so that just having someone who was also chasing words in the morning was a really sweet way to be motivated and kind of write. Well, I love that you had like a built-in writing group every morning with your dad so what was that like just kind of walk me through it as far as your mornings it was a pretty sweet routine we I was in high school then and we would I would wake up before school and spend an hour writing every day and he got the whole morning to write he got some more time but we'd both write together and that's a great discipline because the bane of most writers is and aspiring writers is when to write yes that it definitely took discipline and was hard I was only able to really follow that schedule my first two years of high school but it was it was pretty essential to have someone else who was would help motivate for that start time in the morning tell me about the premise of this book is that it's Eve and her mother are hiding away from like a I don't call it evil cult how did that come about that plot line that was a plot device that I think was just added to as a device to make 
even mama isolated. It's not necessarily built off a particular society. It's referenced as the society in the book and is kind of vague. My first versions of the plot spent a lot more time investigating that society and then I ended up focusing more on Eve. So you did take a lot of the stuff about the cult out. Yeah, the details are all told through Eve's perspective, which is pretty limited. And that was mostly just because of how old I was. It was harder to write anything other than from the perspective of Eve and was just too complex for what I was trying to do. But I have developed the details of that world more in my head. So she and her mother have this really living off the land, literally, lifestyle, right? They hunt deer. They use deer skins to keep warm. They harvest potatoes that they've grown and cranberries and wild foods. They have this really kind of idyllic life. Yeah, they have, they're very much getting all of their calories essentially from the wilds, which is idyllic. There's also some more intense parts. Their winters are pretty hungry. And that was an exciting part to write. I was also part of my homeschooling at the beginning of this was looking at clinket culture and looking at their methods of gathering food. And it was exciting to try to weave some elements of that into thinking about how, how they survived. And a lot of it is a, a survival story. Like most uh, good storytellers, it's never too comfortable for too long. There's always something lurking and you know something ominous that your protagonist is dealing with. The deer are really central to the story. So there's a wonderful part, a, a big part of the story, is that Eve befriends a, a fawn. Tell me a little bit about that relationship with the fawn. That was a really fun element to write and weave into the story. She ends up befriending a fawn whose mother has gotten stuck in a tide flat and drowned. And so this fawn is orphaned in the winter. Just the description of the mother dying in a tide flat is quite compelling. Yeah, that was another intense scene to write and something I haven't seen but was kind of visualizing. Yeah, that's definitely one of the intense pieces of southeast Alaska, just the cold and the tide. But the fawn who's left, Eve, ends up befriending and feeding and kind of becoming closer with. And there's a point in the plot where she's on the island alone and it kind of, her relationship with the fawn develops. Do you want to read a little bit about that? Did you have a part about the fawn you want to read? Yeah. So this is uh, part of the story where Eve is, she's had to leave her cabin and she, the fawn is kind of her only companion at this point. I've only just barely ducked under the spruce branches when the fawn comes up behind me. Seeing him makes me want to laugh, cry, and sing all at the same time, but I can't make any sound at all. He nuzzles the back of my neck and I stroke his ears. I can feel his antler nubs poking up. He takes his head out from my hand and sniffs at my pocket. I don't have anything for you, little guy. He presses his nose against my pocket. I can feel the lichen I harvested yesterday press into my thigh. He's just as hungry as I am. I nudge the fawn's head away with my elbow and pull the lichen out. It's dried out, all crinkly in my hand. I try to pull a single strand out of the ball, but it crumbles in my fingers. The fawn reaches his nose down and takes the lichen out of my hand. He eats it in three chews. Without me, he probably didn't get any food last night. I stroke his neck. The cabin door swings open. So was that kind of an imagining for you? Have you had much experience with fawns in your life? I wish. I've never, other than a few lucky close encounters out hunting, I haven't, have never been able to touch a live deer. It was definitely something I 
fantasized about as a as a kid. But I think that made those scenes all the more fun to write and kind of imagine what that would be like. And the deer is a real a through line through this story, you know, and the, the taking of a buck. Spoiler alert. Um, there's a, a really sad scene with, with the fawn towards the end. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the characters are warm by the deer hides and they're fed by the deer fat. What role did deer play in your family life that you grew up in? Deer are also pretty central in in a slightly different way than Eve, but hunting and being around deer has been pretty central to my whole life since when I was six weeks old, my parents took me out to our hunting cabin and spent a couple months out there with deer. And it's been... Is that an annual occurrence yeah. for your family? Like a whole couple months? Not or not a couple months anymore. Yeah. Um, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, every single year we're, oh, we, we're able to go out there, mm-hmm. um, which has been just a super sweet tradition and really kind of grounding piece for me. Not having experience with hunting myself. That, that's, it sounds like it's pretty intense taking a, a, an animal's life and then skinning it and dealing with its innards. Yes, it's, it's definitely an intense experience. It's something I'm super grateful to have been able to grow, grow up with. And I went through a phase where I was a little bit more distant and now there's almost a sacred element to it. There's just something really, really beautiful and really intense of having this responsibility of taking animal's life and then being so close with it and processing it and sweating and dragging it down and skinning it and being a part of all those steps and then eating it having that be your food is a really just really intense thing and puts a lot of value into it which is really I feel so lucky to be able to have experience with yeah and you describe it so well you know they always say write what you know so that's obviously what you what you've done here um, but do you want to read that for me? That, that's kind of, it's a little bit of a long part, the 87 to sure, 88, yeah. but that's, you really um, bring us into that moment. Couldn't put the book down at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this scene was fun. Eve's process is slightly different than mine because she has fewer resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but So this is a scene where Eve has been without meat for a while, and she's just found a deer in one of her snares. The buck is one of the biggest I've ever seen. There's no snow on top of him. He must be freshly caught. He kicked all the way through the snow, tearing up clods of moss and dirt. His antlers curve into a graceful fork. I'll have meat. To last me a month, maybe even more. I'll be able to give the fawn my sugar. I'll eat something other than chewy clams. I'll make it that much closer to spring. I kneel down next to the deer and loosen the snare from his neck. It jerks out of the rope and drops to the ground. His glazed eyes stare up at me. I'm sorry, I whisper. Mama always held the deer while I untied the knot, then lowered them down gently. I lay my hand on the deep brown fur and lift his head back up. His neck is thick and muscular. I reach into my pocket, take out the knife, flip the clasp of the sheath open, and slide the blade out. Then I roll the deer onto his back and squat behind him, pushing out on his legs with my knees so his soft white belly is exposed. The warmth of intestines slides into my fingers as I begin to open the body cavity. I remember gutting the dough with Mama after we pulled the waterlogged body from the mud. How the legs were so stiff, one of us had to hold them apart. How the body cavity was steely cold, tiny scraps of abdominal fat, white and hard. I run my fingers over the soft, warm fat. I pull the carcass up to a nursery log and prop the chest up, letting blood drain out through where I cut the rectum. The white underside of the tail soaks up the deep red. When the last drops trickle out, I wedge my hands through the incision under the sternum and wrestle the body onto a clean patch of snow. I skin quickly, nicking the dark meat five times. There's no reason to be in a hurry. Mama being gone doesn't change anything, but my hands keep moving faster. When the skin is off, I rinse the heart and liver in the creek, blood swirling away in the current. 
I put them gently in the body cavity, then cut the carcass in half to carry, sitting on the rib cage and twisting the pelvis to break the backbone. And then uh, the book goes into how hard it is to carry this animal. And, oh my gosh, it's so heavy. And then she runs into a, an issue with a bear who the, the bear decides it's his, actually, or hers. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. As far as your descriptions, you know, your, your imagery and... Uh, the five senses that you hit and you're telling this story. Was that something that came naturally to you? Or tell me about the process of sort of drafting and crafting this story. Did it take some running it by just, I know you know a few authors. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this story was definitely, would not have been possible without several people. I was really lucky to be mentored by an author, Dia Calhoun, who's a children's book author based out of Washington. And mm. we ended up meeting and she was really central to my process. At, when I started working with her, I had a mash of kind of random scenes and she really helped me refine the plot and the structure mm. and build it into a story. Mm. So I was- How did you find her? Our meeting was a kind of random, uh, but really lucky chance. I actually was in fourth grade mm-hmm. My teacher had us enter in this contest writing to authors who'd inspired us. And so I wrote to Dia and ended up winning the contest. And through that, we kind of started talking and I wrote a piece for her blog. And then the next year, I homeschooled and started this process and we were in touch and it kind of grew from there. I love it. So like you had a a mentor and editor by the time you were in sixth grade and that (laughs) (laughs) perfect timing (laughs) so uh, were there any times when you felt like you're going to tear your hair out like this is not it's not easy (laughs) (laughs) so so many (laughs) every morning no there were definitely a lot of challenging moments and you kind of get a love-hate relationship with the story in some ways where it's frustrating or something's not working and Dia was really helpful through that and it was also really cool to kind of learn the process of when I was frustrated with a scene or frustrated with something often it meant there was a plot piece that needed to shift I'd eventually find it and it would kind of click into place and then everything would work so much better so so that's a clue that she would say this this is something that needs to shift or or I would I would end up being frustrated and then we'd go back a couple weeks later and realize, oh, this is this is what needs to happen. So there's this really exciting element where you feel like the characters are kind of telling you the story and you just have to sleuth it out if you get it wrong. Tell me a little bit about that, because I do nonfiction, and I understand with fiction that, you know, these characters actually, they appeared, come through you. Did you feel that? I definitely did. Those were the moments of writing where it was a really exciting process when I would be writing a scene and have an idea for the ending and then in it realize it actually went this direction and or this was actually the detail and it it just kind of comes to you and especially as you get closer to the characters Mm -hmm. it's a really fun process to be able to just be in this world and you feel like you're kind of the scribe who gets to access a little window and write it down and so through your personal life experience you had the environment down and the animals and the the rain and the hardships and the beauty of southeast alaska but then these characters as you're writing, they start to come to life, as it were. Yes, that's a really good way of describing it. It definitely was a collaborative effort between us in getting the story out, which was a really fun process to learn the beginnings of. Well, I think it's interesting, too, that you're only child, 
who's, you know, raised in this remote place by two pretty awesome parents, if I may say so myself, and that it's about the closeness with her parents. But, of course, the only parent she knows for the first two-thirds of the book, at least, is her mother. Yes, that was definitely, I think, less consciously, but plays a really important role in my process in writing of learning how to survive from your parents. There's moments of the story where the scene with where she's making cranberries with her mom or are elements that definitely I was pulling on memories from my childhood with with my mom Anya to write which was fun to be able to weave that through. I mean it sounds like your parents wanted you to learn how to survive in the wilderness without Costco. <laughs> we we go to there we do some good Costco runs. Um, yes, I think it was the lifestyle they had and just kind of showed me all the elements of it as I was growing up, which I feel so, so incredibly grateful for. Yes, the one moment with Anya that I is specifically in the book was processing cranberries is something we've done together most falls. And there's that's a central scene with even Mama, too, which was a fun, yeah. fun thing to write. Cranberries, they're we usually get high volume. They're very juicy berry, so we're usually squishing the juice out and we can the juice even mama dry the whole thing and then drink the juice but they're very sour berry and how about the cranberry cakes there's cranberry cakes in there but they're they're not necessarily like batter cakes right no they are um they're kind of pulp that then they're drying so they have all the fiber and all the calories and that's something I've never done I kind of invented Mm. that um which was inspired by reading about clinket berry preserving methods because we can most of our berries so that was something I kind of invented that Eve and Mama did I've never tried it but just as a method to usually we just squish all the juice out and get rid of the seedy pulp so part of this plot line is that Eve's mother was part of kind of this weird cult and she was judged imperfect and then was banished I guess to this island with her daughter Tell me about that whole part of the story and what it's saying there. It kind of developed as just a way to get Eve and Mama there. So the the premise is Eve's mother, Sarah, grew up in a society where they were trying to perfect the gene pool. So it's based, it's in a very dark way based on eugenics and their method of doing this is to remove anyone who's imperfect from being able to reproduce. And so Eve's mother has scoliosis, so she's taken from her family at a pretty young age and locked up in an enclosure. And it's set not specifically, but roughly early 1900s, so their only form of birth control is that if the imperfects are to have children, the children are to be killed. And Eve's mother ends up pregnant at 16 and runs away so her baby can survive. And her child is Eve, who's the main character of the story. The mother's very young. Yeah, and I don't know why I wasn't uh, noticing that it was. It takes place like 100 years ago. Pretty ambiguous in the plot. I don't, I don't specify yeah. time frame or mm-hmm. location at all. And that's, that was just roughly what was in my head. But mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not a big piece of the story by any means. But yeah, and also that there's things that haven't changed as far as the natural environment we have here in southeast Alaska and how you can survive in it, which as we all know, the, the Clinket people have been handling since time immemorial. And I think it's interesting, too, at, at the end, um, how she finally does meet her father. But this is after she's like, she's really worn herself out, like sleeping outside for nine 
nights trying to stay away from him because her mother told her, you know, anybody who comes is, is a bad person who's going to gonna kill her, which I thought that was, at first I was kind of like, wow, really? <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely intense intense pieces there mm-hmm. and Eve is given these little windows and hasn't really interacted with other humans so doesn't understand quite a bit of what's going on and it was a fun exercise and somewhat challenging to really stick to the first person perspective of mm-hmm. Eve and not giving away any details she wouldn't know. This being a, a celebration of place this story was that mm-hmm. accurate mm-hmm. Um, what do you think it's saying about where we are right now as a species, you're a climate activist. What is it saying about how precious this life we have is here? The book doesn't speak directly to that, but I think a message that ended up coming out of Eve's story is just the value of the natural world Mm -hmm. and relationship with the natural world and healing elements of that, Mm -hmm. which are really important for me in why I'm passionate about the climate and what's important, what's worth saving, and how we can heal and reconnect. And so I think the value of story and just illustrating the importance for someone who's grown up immersed in that and what that looks like can kind of plant those seeds of the idea. That isn't to say I wrote the book with that necessarily in mind. I think that was something that came out of Eve's story, which Mm -hmm. is really exciting to see as kind of an undertone. Also, just this lifestyle we have here where they could be not that far away, one island or another, one peninsula or another, but it seems so much farther away because there's not a road. Right? (laughs) Yeah, that was a fun element to be able to work with, and they're reliant on rowboat, which makes it even more isolating. The thing I also found interesting is the story starts and ends with the image of the V of Sandhill Cranes, as your dad's book does, Mm -hmm. the, The Faith of Cranes. I thought it was really fascinating that the cranes, they travel the globe in their lifetimes. So fascinating. But here you have these families, members that are separated from on remote islands, but they're not that far from each other. They're just kept apart by these segments of ocean. And that's just a fact of life in Southeast Alaska. You address that, I think, really beautifully in the book. Yeah, that was an exciting, yeah, just a piece of the book that kind of fell naturally into place and was fun to imagine of what what it would look like if you were reliant on rowboat in this environment and how challenging travel would be. Then also the title, Hold the Tide, how dependent we are on tides for uh, clamming or for taking your boat over to an an island where you might, like Admiralty Island, for example, you you need to know what the tide is. Tide definitely plays a big piece in the story, Mm -hmm. and it was a struggle coming up with the right title, but I feel like it came out as a pretty central theme, and it's the lesson of tides of something we can't control but are reliant on was one that fits into Eve's kind of coming of age and journey, which seemed to fit together nicely. Also, the compelling scenes of the the doe and then the dad in the muck, this dangerous thing that can happen if you get into a really mucky place Mm -hmm. on the shore. Um, Have you had any experience with that or seen that kind of thing? That sounded terrifying (laughs) in the story. (laughs) Yes, I haven't, thankfully, have not personally experienced that. Definitely been, had to be cautious of it in some cases. But Mm -hmm. yeah, thankfully, I haven't had to have first-hand experience with being stuck while the tide's coming in. (laughs) Part of the book addresses how people are brought together with music 
and there's a violin that's a character, if you will, in the story. How did that come about, and do you have some experience with music in the place you grew up and, and bringing people together? I do. I, I play violin, and that came into the story as kind of, it wasn't in my original plot, um, and I was working on getting image stories to be cohesive throughout the plot and kind of wove that one in, led to some really fun scenes and was kind of a tie to the outside world Mm -hmm. that was really needed in connecting Eve. Mm -hmm. And so this is Eve's uncle Samuel playing violin. He puts the bow on the strings and lets his fingers fly. Mama starts tapping her foot. She smiles into the soup pot. I sit and watch Samuel's bow. The music fills me up, so full it seems like it would flow outside of me, outside the cabin, off away from the island, to all the corners of the world where the cranes fly. After dinner, Mama pulls out the spruce baskets from the corner. Our biggest one lost its bottom in summer, so we need a new one. I don't have a tight enough weave to make a berry basket, but I take the snarl of roots from the pile and peel their bark off with my fingernail. Mama lights a candle from the wood stove, sending light dancing across the walls. She sits on the other side of the hearth. Samuel goes to get his bedding from the boat. A gust of wind blows down the chimney and rain hisses in the fire. The storm makes the cabin feel safe and warm. I pull the deerskin from the bed around my shoulders. The storm means Samuel will stay. I watch the light from the candle dance back and forth. My eyes close. The door squeaks as Samuel walks in. He puts his bedskins down in the corner, then pours himself a cup of tea from the stove. She's fast asleep, isn't she? He says, looking over at me. Mama shifts so she can see me. Yep, all worn out. Well, it sounds like the lifestyle's pretty wearing out. <laughs> and But Eve is so attached to her mother. It's such a sad scene when the mother is taken away by the bad cult people. <laughs> That's definitely a, a page-turner, that chapter. Do you want to just read for me a little bit from that? I look down at my own boots, caked in snow. Mama's mitten floats between them, the ragged end of the wrist where she took yarn off to patch my mitten's drifts in the water. The only sound is the gentle slap-slap of water on the beach. Something wells up inside me. I take off sprinting, down the beach, over the rocks, stumbling over the seaweed between the snow and incoming tide. Once I reach the rocks, I dash up the path. My boots slip and my knee jams into the jagged bedrock. A patch of blood stains my pants, but I don't feel anything. I push myself up and scramble to the top of the cliffs. The water is perfectly calm. So far that I have to squint to see it, the boat slides across the calm water. The rhythmic motion of the oars makes a splash of glistening white, in and out, in and out. Each stroke pulls them further away. A drop of blood runs down my leg. The only sound in the woods seems to be my breath. Mama, I scream. My voice shatters the still air. Mama, the only reply is the echo from the mountain. So you have to buy the book to find out what happens (laughs) next. So how's it going? It's been really exciting to see the story out in the world and hear people reading it. My goal was never for it to be a competitive or a super successful title, but it's been really fun just to hear people in Southeast Alaska reading it and think of Eve's story being shared. It's a really, really exciting process. You've gotten a lot of good feedback, it looks like, from some uh, pretty wonderful writers. Do you have another novel brewing? Not at the moment. I've, um, it, it might be a while in my life before I'm lucky enough to have the space to write another book. So not, nothing brewing at the moment, but hopefully at some point I'll have the time to write again. Okay, well, this is a fantastic debut novel, if, if you will. Anything you want to add, something I haven't asked you about? I don't think so. Thank you so much for 
opportunity. Well, Linnea Lenfer, thank you for joining us on Active Voice. Thank you, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Active Voice with Linnea Lenfer, author of Hold the Tide. You can find Linnea's debut novel at local bookstores, bookshop.org, and other online retailers. The Active Voice podcast is an audio forum from 49 Writers for artists and writers in these challenging times. Please subscribe and follow the Active Voice podcast on Apple, Spotify, and 49writers.org. Music by Liz Snyder and Alex Kutlars. I'm Katie Bosler.